0: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Alexa Diaz, I work at Netflix, and I'm super excited to be hosting this week's episode. Every other week on You Can't Make This Up, we bring in a new interviewer to talk about different Netflix shows with special guests. And do you know what each story has in common? They're all surprisingly true. This week, we're looking into the real lives of Black survivalists from people who have learned to live completely off the grid to those who do bomb drills right in the heart of Times Square. We first learned about the world of Black survivalists in one of the episodes of Follow This, a new pop-doc series from BuzzFeed and Netflix. Each episode is under 20 minutes and shadows a BuzzFeed journalist while they explore a new story. And the reporter who wrote about Black survivalists is our guest on today's show, Bim Arewoonmi. Bim is a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed and co-hosts the podcast Thirst Aid Kit with poet and writer Nicole Perkins. Usually, Bim and Nicole talk about lust, desire, and pop culture, but we thought it'd be fun to bring in Nicole to interview Bim about her experience reporting on this story and how long she thinks she could survive in a post-apocalypse world. Hi, Bim. Hello, Nicole. <laughs> it's very odd to be looking
1: across from you in a different studio. In a different
2: studio, in a different context, and uh, you know, yeah. the nature of me interviewing you. Yeah, that's interesting. I know.
1: Okay, <laughs> so let's get started.
2: All right. You have an episode of Follow This mm-hmm. on Netflix about black survivalists. I do. Yes. <laughs> what made you decide to look into black survivalists and preppers?
1: Okay, so um, it came to me um, via my friend Tahira who used to live in the Pacific Northwest. And she had told me that there was a really interesting woman who called herself Afrovivalist. And mm-hmm. I went onto her website, um, which is a lot more polished now post-Netflix, uh, which is cool. Um, but on her website, there's a silhouette of a, a woman with an Afro and a pair of heels and wearing a gun. Like on her body. Interesting. And I was like, who the hell is that? I wanna <laughs> know. So Hero said, Yeah, this woman is really into like urban survivalism and on her website, Afrovivalist, she calls herself an urban huntress. And I was like, you know what? That's a solid song lyric. But also how interesting to see this person. Yeah. Um, I think for many people the idea of survivalism is uh forever. Enmeshed with whiteness and specifically violent whiteness. Mm-hmm. It's often seen as, you know, end of world scenario, the water wars, and, you know, every single ism of the current world being exacerbated by a massive event. And so white supremacy would get even more stringent. And that looks like men with guns mm-hmm. um, who are willing to quote unquote protect what's theirs. Mm-hmm. And I think for many people, the idea of survivalism looks like that. So to find this woman who was in many ways in direct opposite that she's a woman, she's black, she wasn't like a young, she's not like 22, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. She's like this experienced in the world like, you know, an older woman and for her her stated goal was to prepare herself, you know, to get ready. And I was like, all right, I'm stressed out but I want to know more. Yeah. So, I kind of had the idea to write about her because mm-hmm. that's what I do in my day job. I am a senior culture writer, um, and so I was preparing to kind of reach out and be like, hey, let's talk about this thing that you do. And then um, BuzzFeed and Netflix got together in a beautiful marriage.
2: <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> and I spoke to my editor about it, and she was like, oh, this could be really nice and visual. This could be one of your episodes mm-hmm. for for this series. And I pitched it. Um, I say, I, we pitched it. Carolina, my editor, um, who is fantastic, and the whole crew was kind of like invested from the get-go. I was like, All right, I want to do this thing that is about survivalism, but hey, they're black survivalists, and mm-hmm. I think we should not shy away from that difference. I don't think a white survivalist is the same thing as a black survivalist, merely because the circumstances in which they exist in the world as is, mm-hmm. is not the same. So to kind of complicate that, um, let's look at it in the context of survivalism.
2: Yes. Okay. so what were some of the differences that you found with looking at black survivalists versus our idea of what a prepper is? Not just obviously race, but Uh also methodology, how they're going about it, all of that.
1: What were some of the differences you found? So a big thing, I think, is that um, many people don't realize that survivalism actually can be quite expensive Mm. you know you have to get gear you have to have a space you have to collect you have to find storage where you can put all the things you're collecting and the costs add up so for many people I don't think many people understand I think the idea of them in some hovel somewhere like protecting it's like yeah but that takes money yeah and I think for many people yeah survivalism is an expensive hobby slash lifestyle choice Mm -hmm. um and I think in talking to so many people from the black survivalist community, it became very clear that they were conscious of the cost. So they they didn't kind of like dismiss it. It was clearly an issue. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys I spoke to called Aton, um, he was great because he was just kind of like, listen, when shit really hits the fan, yeah. you're not going to necessarily be able to access the things like money you literally will lose meaning. Like, what do you do? Yeah. So he, he was very interested, for example, in making stuff with found objects. So he was someone who was kind of like, let's keep the cost low. Like, what do we need? How do we get them? Um, and because we can't necessarily, not all of us can necessarily afford these brand shiny new gas masks, for example. He essentially was kind of like, great, you, I'll teach you how to do that with a bottle or two bottles and some wire or some twine or whatever. Yeah. So he was very much a case of kind of like, you don't need the big money. The key thing about his particular movement is teaching people in the community. So for him, it was more of an education um, and that came up a lot. I spoke to a Revivalist and she said, you know, the big thing I mean I think she wasn't as complex as she could have been. Um, and I tried to push it and she just wasn't delivering. Mm. <laughs> but she said, you know, the difference is black people aren't connected to the earth anymore. And I was like, Why do you think that is? And tried to kind of push her that way. But my feeling is the move for so many black people from rural into urban spaces has meant that there has been a disconnect between them and I guess the things that are more classified as survival skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a big thing this idea of being unfamiliar with how to even survive outside of the creature comforts that we all know and love. I mean, I'm very much counting myself in this category. I joked at the time, you know, this felt to me one of my favorite shows you know is The Walking Dead (laughs) Um, and that feeling for me of understanding that oh not only would I have not not made it this far into the apocalypse I would have died in like the pre-credit sequence and actually fairly happily just kind of like you know what fair enough if you don't have the (laughs) skills just die like it's not a problem yeah just try to die quietly like that's (laughs) like that was my motto it's like don't attract zombies just die quietly so I'm very aware of the fact that I have massive limitations. I, for example, cannot drive. Yes, that's one of my questions Well, (laughs) for you. I'm glad because I've had so many thoughts and feelings about how, how would I be able to survive in the event of whatever the the disaster looks like? Mm -hmm. I feel like I've weighed them all up and I'm like, huh, I might survive six more hours in this one, but I'm dying quick either way. Like, so it really kind of, I was amused on the one hand because I was like, all these people and their ideas. Yeah. And then very quickly, also kind of like, man, if shit did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this would be it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You bring up that
2: you're a city girl. You don't know how to drive. No. Do you feel more inclined to learn now? Do you
1: know what? No. Um, because I did take some <laughs> lessons. I know. Don't look at me like that. I know. OK. I took some lessons okay. um, many years ago, more than a decade ago. I have spatial awareness. I understand how things fit. I'm, I'm from the city. I know not to mm-hmm. touch people. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I can gauge distance quite well. Yeah. In a car, that all goes out the window, no pun intended. Yeah. Like, I literally sit down in a car. I put my hands on the steering wheel. I put my feet on the bloody pedals. And I'm just kind of like, what is space? What is, I don't right. understand. And and you need to learn how to drive stick too. Exactly. Because, because you never know what you're going to find exactly. when you're on the
2: run and you have to make do with what exactly. there.
1: This is it. So there are so many barriers to learning, but the key thing is me. I know that I am, mm. like I, I had like maybe three lessons or maybe mm. two. And I know I should have stuck at it because that's what everyone tells you to do. Yeah. But I was just kind of like, it's okay. Maybe this just means I was meant to be rich. And so <laughs> it's fine. Like somebody will drive me places. Yes, um, but you, you're not going to have a driver in an apocalypse. I mean, you don't know my circumstances, Nicole. I might have a driver in the apocalypse. Sure,
2: all right. (laughs) And then also driving with glasses is a whole different thing because your peripheral is like compromised. It is. And you have to adjust for all that kind of stuff. Well,
1: I think about that as well. Just the things that we have grown used to. I wear glasses. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't think I would ever allow myself to get LASIK or any kind of... Laser surgery to yeah. repair my eyesight, but in the event of an have ev- an event, mm-hmm. what do you do with all these things that we have kind of folded into modern life? Like, right. where would I get my contact lens prescription? <laughs> do you understand? Yeah, so you have to mob through
2: a couple of uh, Warby Parker's or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but and... <laughs> what happens when they run
1: out? Hey,
2: I exactly. Don't know. You see, so yeah. like this you have really be very
1: careful with everything. I mean, sure, but that can't happen. <laughs> and I think that was the thing, like this idea of you know, you have to kind of divorce yourself from your reality in right now. And it Mm. does seem insane. And I think the thing that I found very much with these people is they know they sound insane. Mm. They're aware that they look odd or weird or whatever. And, you know, I've had people kind of comment afterwards and kind of go to me, you know, prepping is a sick, sick pastime because it's kind of like the glee with which these people are preparing for the worst. Mm. And I was like, "Eh, not so much, because when I spoke to these people, a lot of the time, especially for the the black survivalists, one of the most radicalising moments for them was Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And that's when they thought to themselves, hold on, the government doesn't give a shit about us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that was a real kind of... You know, it was a massive gong of like, pay attention for these people where it was kind of like I had my suspicions, you know, folklore, like in terms of like, you know, uh, community myth and community stories and community history. Like we we, everything becomes a bit of everything. Right. It's never just the straight facts. There's all these other bits added on. So you can argue with yourself and kind of go, "Eh, I guess some of this must be, you know, kind of just hyperbole. And then Hurricane Katrina happened. And in front of the nation and the world suddenly it was like, oh, it's not hyperbole. Mm-hmm. All of it is happening as, as it were. People were abandoned, people died, people were forgotten. People who, you know, support was withdrawn very quickly, if right. offered at all. And it was like this massive kind of like eye-opening experience for many people. And when I spoke to Afrovivalist, when I spoke to Aton, when I spoke to Bettine and Crystal Energy, they were just saying essentially, Hurricane Katrina taught you that if you don't look out for yourself, no one will look out for you. Right, And I think that for me was like this idea of as a galvanizing moment for them. That was interesting for me as well, because I'm not American. Uh, I'm black, but I'm British. And I think we haven't had such a, a moment in, in, in terms of like natural disaster mm-hmm. for black Brits, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say we need one in order to get ready. Right. But just this idea of one unifying moment where I suppose... Arguably, the government's contempt was laid bare for like poor communities or communities of colour and often where those two intersect. And I think that was for them a real eye opening moment. And many of them, in fact, all of them brought up Hurricane Katrina as a turning point for them.
2: I wonder um, if that is also one of the differences between white preppers and black survivalists. They're concerned seemingly more about what happens in the fallout of a war mm. or, you know, they're just trying to get off grid, period. Mm. Um, whereas these black survivalists are very much concerned with environmental racism if they don't necessarily call it that. Right. So
1: is is that something that you saw? Would you say that that's a fair assessment? I think so. I think they were very aware of the intersections of specifically government policy and how they live their lives like i think that was a very important thing they they are so i suppose i mean they do have a similar thing which is that something bad will happen soon mm-hmm. which i think they do have in common with white survivalists this idea that you know there's that tom hanks character on snl who kind of has a quite a lot in common with with like he's this rural white man yeah, and you know yeah. and he has this, this distrust of the government yeah. is something that you know, black people understand. Yeah. Like when he's, But I think where it kind of deviates is essentially whiteness protects. Mm-hmm. And I think for black survivalists, there is a very clear knowledge that we can't trust the government, but also we will not be protected. Mm-hmm. You know, so on the one hand, you can say... Everyone's justified to, you know, not trust the government. Some people are more justified than others. Like there is history in place to suggest that when it really goes down, you will be the first to be forgotten or to be kind of cast aside or whatever. And I think for black survivalists, there is that very, very present knowledge because things are not things are I mean, things aren't perfect for anyone. But they're arguably more imperfect right now Mm -hmm. for black and brown folks or poor folks or whether to kind of meet than they are for white people. So there's an urgency yeah. to it, which is kind of like we're barely surviving now. If things were to go really bad, whether that be an environmental problem or war or whatever, we would not be looked after doubly. And mm-hmm. I think that was that's the that's the driving force of kind of like things are bad now. So imagine how much worse they could get. Right.
2: I want to go back to Mm. Afrovivalist.
1: Does she live completely
2: off-grid? I understand you have to protect her anonymity. And so we can't say where she lived, where you went, or her real name. (laughs) But is she completely off-grid? Does she have a day job? Like, where does she have?
1: How does she earn money to get the gear that she she has? Well, she's... Listen, Afrovivalist was impressive. Like, I I suppose at the back of my mind, I had harbored an idea that I was going to kind of like smile indulgently and kind of be like, okay. Mm -hmm. But then I met her and I was like, you know what? She's talking sense. So she does have a job. Okay. Um, She has a family, she has children and so on. But she's also someone who I think, she talks about a lot about her father who had been in service. I forget which branch. But she was saying how he loved to hunt. He taught her. And she was someone who kind of like had a real moment where she was like, I need to go back to the land. Mm -hmm. And so she did that. Um but she does have a job and she's been collecting for years like she has like plans to eventually be fully off grid. Mm. But at the moment it's kind of like a almost like a weekend. Mm. Uh she drives to her place mm-hmm. off grid which was one of my favorite captions in the whole episode was so like you know it's Off-grid-y. like off the grid USA <laughs> and I was like yeah I made it. Um but I thought that was you know she she's she's not operating Without a plan. Mm. This is not just something that she kind of wanders in and out of. This is like everything she's doing right now, she said, is to make sure that she can eventually go off grid even before anything happens. Interesting. Yeah, she's just ready to just kind of be done with it. She's just kind of like, just let me free. You know, she hunts. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah,
2: let's talk about the turkey about hunt. That. Yeah, um, was that your first experience on a hunt? Did you
1: feel like it changed the way you approached meat after <laughs> Do you that? You know what? No, meat is bloody delicious, <laughs> and um, seeing a creature you know disemboweled and whatever, not a problem. I mean, I know I look pretty taken aback when yeah, she's you disemboweling have some nervous the turkey. laughter happening. I mean, it's off <laughs> for me. Okay, so this is the thing. So, I, I grew up in Britain. And also in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Um, And Nigerians have no qualms about letting you know where your food is coming from. You know, we killed chickens every few weeks yeah. and we made a delicious stew and we ate that stew and it was great <laughs> and so I've never been I plucked chickens I've never killed one myself mm-hmm. but I have held a still warm chicken and plucked its feathers off and then fried the delicious meat and eaten it and kind of said thank you chicken that was great <laughs> so I'm not I'm not squeamish necessarily I think I'm actually quite I've got quite a hard-lined stomach yeah but there is something about somebody reaching into the cavity of a dead bird and pulling out her heart or its heart I don't know, and saying here, uh huh, and I'm like, you know what? I don't need to see that. I understand that's a dead bird. Uh, I actually have a couple of feathers from that from turkey. That I was going to ask, did you take the heart as a souvenir? I did not take the heart as a souvenir because okay. that would be sick. Um, instead, <laughs> I took a couple of tail feathers uh-huh. and they are currently uh, on my bedside table. And I look at them and I remember our revivalists and our wonderful times together off-grid USA. <laughs> and I fall asleep with dreams of s- survivalism. It's it's wonderful. Okay, let's play a clip from that scene because it's, it's too good.
2: <laughs> Gotta get the
1: guts out. <laughs> wow. Yeah, all right? I'm great. Here, girl, have I'm, a heart. I'm, do you know what? That's a lovely gift. No thanks. <laughs> it's kind of remarkable how it goes from looking like a once-living creature to just meat. Isn't that amazing? I, I mean, that's, that's one stiff. word for it. So did you spend the night out in the woods with Afrivalist? How was that? So that was very, listen, again, I am someone who generally is quite hardy. I think in as much as I'm a city girl who has, you know, I love my comforts and whatever. I am mm-hmm. very adaptable. So I'm like, all right, fine. I guess we're sleeping in the woods. Yeah. Um, the thing about the woods, and people forget when you've lived in cities for so long, is that the darkness is total. Oh yeah. So at night there is nothing, like you cannot make out the shape of your own hand in front of your face. Mm-hmm. And I had forgotten that. Um, mm. And so that for me was kind of like oh no it's yeah this could rah, okay cool yeah. so uh, <laughs> there were lots of I had to kind of like g myself up to go and pee in the middle of the night because um, mm-hmm. the outhouse was far away so there was like a physical building and yeah. did you just have to go to a little I hole just had to go to, no it was it was a it was I mean essentially a hole but it yeah. was in a in a constructed building it had four walls okay a little light you know a little bug zapper uh huh so it was you know oh, a, interesting yeah they, listen see a, that's. Okay. survivalists aren't trying to die of fucking malaria. Like, they have plans. They, they have bug zappers. <laughs> Nobody enjoys a spider on the face. Well, see, I'm thinking they're just like, okay, you need to go, like, so many hundreds of feet away and dig a hole and then cover it up and no, then come back. because, and this is the thing, survivalists are planners. Mm. So they don't do holes in the ground. Mm. They build a thing, like, Okay, if we're going to be off grid. We're going to make sure that the water table is undisturbed. We're going to make sure that yeah. we're planning. You know, the populations of Turkey stay the same. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like people are pl- by nature. These are these are the planners of the world. So in fact, their digs are actually quite nice. Okay. So yeah. So okay. in the middle of the night, it has to go up, and that was the thing. So you know, we had like a I had a head torch, mm-hmm. um, so I could see where I was going, and. On the one hand, of course, there's like the terror of the unknown. When the when the night is dark and you're just kind of like, you know what? If I die, I die. Which is fatalistic, um, <laughs> but also very mean. Actually quite British. Kind of like, well, it's time. But on the well, other hand, I was oddly relaxed. Because I was like, you know, technically, I'm in the safest place I could be. Right. Because you have someone who knows the area right. where everything is. They know who I am. Yeah. Like, oh, and it's not as though I was going to like hopefully die quietly. Like Uh I was going to just whimper or yell. Someone be like, wait, wait, what's that sound? And that's the other thing. Sound carries when there is nothing. Yeah. So literally a crunch of a twig, I was like, Why is that so bloody loud? But everything is loud. So you know what? It was terrifying for like five minutes. Yeah. Then afterwards I was like, oh my God, this is what giving in feels like. I was like, oh okay. Uh, come on in. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. So yeah, that was like that was the wildest night I spent. Like mm-hmm. every other time I was asleep in my own bed for the rest of the episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to spend time with Approprivalist so we could get up early enough to go hunt turkeys. I had to sleep out there in the wild and it was lovely the air was crisp mm. you know we literally you know me and the crew we, we went looking at stars I don't know how to stargaze so I was told by a wonderful PA um, she was basically pointing out it felt very much like a, a meat cute which is actually very <laughs> odd but she was showing me she was like oh that's the big dipper I was like oh that's the dipper and she was like you know it was great I felt very kind of like I was like wow you know what put some romantic jazz music on this and you know what we've got ourselves a day like it was just lovely um, so yeah it's absolutely beautiful absolutely peaceful I can see why so when i spoke to our revivalist the next day and she was saying you know i have peace of mind and on the one hand you do think to yourself "Mm, i guess sis but on the other i'm like you look pretty happy like the idea of planning gave her joy the idea of being prepared for something gave her joy and it gave her peace because she was saying how she didn't feel safe she wasn't she she was stressed out do you think that that comes from um being
2: prepared or just also being like i'm gonna survive and you're not
1: I imagine there's some of that in okay. there because we, you know, we asked and said, this didn't make it into the episode, but we were like, you know, does your family, like, I bet your family is really glad that they have you. And she was like, I've told them to prepare. Oh, and so she doesn't take them out with her. Like some of, no, Well, she asked. And that's mm-hmm. the thing. She extended the invitation. She said, come on, let's learn this, you know, and her family, she was like, you know, they're very girly, her sister and her mom and so on. And she was like, so they just didn't. And I was like okay what does that mean and she mm. was like well i guess it means what it means and i was like right oh, that's hard but also like she's planning her life based on her needs yeah and so if her family is not willing to get on board she's kind of like well you know so she's fully prepared to leave them behind well not prepared like resigned to it Resigned. Came okay. to shove like okay. she's kind of like i've extended this you uh-huh. know she's t- you know she's talking about teaching her grandson how to shoot she got him a little bow and arrow for his birthday recently. And I was like, <laughs> okay, i have a revivalist. She was, um, yeah, she she was someone who I think, yeah, part of it was, I think, anyway, I don't know, you'd have to ask her, but I think part of it is kind of like, I'm prepared and you're not. And, you know, when yeah. the shit hits the fan, you'll see. Yeah. But I think most of it was just kind of like, she said how she felt so, you know, she was talking a lot about the current administration and she was talking about how it felt very kind of good old boys and not really for her. And so she... You know, she wasn't sleeping well. She was yeah. wondering what might become of her. Katrina had opened her eyes to this thing, mm-hmm. various hurricanes and disaster relief and all that stuff. And she was like, wait, I can make plans. I can do stuff. Um, and I think, you know, that was actually kind of, I suppose it was very, it was, I found, I found it fascinating. Like, I'm not sure I could relate 100%, but I understood
2: yeah, the these survivalists that you um talked to in the episode seem very confident in that it's it's not a matter of prevention. It's more of a when, not if. Right. Like there will be in these scenarios. Mm. It's definitely happening. Can you speak more to their confidence about the fact that some kind of way all hell is going to break loose and we're going to have to survive on our own? And how does that affect their day-to-day activities? Are they anxious people? Uh Or, you know, how do they go about their daily, quote-unquote, regular lives?
1: Right. So I think for someone like Aton, who has been doing this for such a long time, he started off, he kind of got concerned about, what might happen i think he kind of looked around one day in new york and was like we are ripe for something terrible Mm -hmm. and he spoke a little bit about you know how he had somehow foreseen or at least had an idea that something like 9-11 might happen
2: because he's been doing um disaster preparedness classes since 1989 yeah he's been on
1: this yeah like he's not new to this he's true to this and i (laughs) i i kind of respected that like this is consistent that this was someone saying look, mm-hmm. I know what I sound like, I know what I look like, but trust me, something yeah. is coming. And part of that, I think, for him, the justification came after the attacks on September 11. Mm-hmm. And I think for th- that kind of sharpened his, his zeal, where he was kind of like, all right, what we need to do is learn how to protect people. And I think that's why, for example, the thing about teaching people how to use gas masks mm-hmm. and how to make them rather, that's such an important thing to him because it, in his mind, the, the event, capital E, might be anything, I think people always think that preppers are preparing for some kind of war. And it's like, no, nah, it might not even be that. Mm-hmm. It could just be a series of like terrible environmental disasters and right. the way global warming works out and so on and so forth. No one can quite predict what it will be. But they are. Yeah, they are. I wouldn't say even confident. I think they're just, again, resigned. They know something is on roots. They, they, you know, these are people who kind of study weather patterns and they look at, I don't know, the distribution of Wealth, and they're mm-hmm. kind of like eh, something doesn't quite curl all the way over. Yeah, so we have to make sure that in the event that it kind of uncurls so horribly. We're able to kind of survive and our communities can thrive despite that. And in many ways, you know, some of them said the thing about, you know, well, we're actually better disposed to this than others because we have been dealing with so little in terms Mm -hmm. of like resources Mm -hmm. that maybe that makes us more adaptable. So there was that Um, for people like Bettine and Crystal Energy, the couple who were kind of like very interested in making sure that there are legally owned firearms um, for many people in the black community. That also became, you know, that thing I was saying before about government policy and how, Mm -hmm. you know, just social uh, understanding of, of weapons and so on. I think, again, the idea that white people love to play with guns, um, but black people don't because mm-hmm. what it looks like when a black person is holding a gun is very different to what it looks like when a white person is holding a gun. Right. Um, and, I, you know, Eitan, for example, kind of had like a bit of a Black Panther background and he had gone to the camps as a child and he had, you know, the idea of self-reliance, the idea of self-sufficiency, like these things are not new concepts to them. They had been kind of thinking about this for so long and they've been kind of like percolating for so long and so when they grew up of course they fall back onto these things that are so familiar to them that they know and that is the idea that you don't look after yourself no one will and so the self-reliance thing I think for for especially for Bettine and for Crystal was kind of like if we were to accumulate if we were able to kind of protect ourselves and all that stuff how would we how would what would that look like and the answer is for them legal weaponry like mm-hmm. you know they, they, they spoke a lot i went to a community meeting that they did up in harlem and they were talking about things like you know here is the process if you want to um, legally own and buy a gun here is what you require to do so they have like these workshops where they are essentially teaching black people who traditionally have been kind of left out of owning guns right. and they're kind of like no this is important you need to know how to do that and for patine he was kind of saying well you need to protect what you've got Um, and you need to be able also to kind of, beyond protecting, just defend yourself, because if things were to go south, you know... Human beings are notoriously, you know, under a little bit of pressure, they go feral. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, we see that in all the post-apocalyptic TV
2: shows and movies where people become desperate. I mean, we
1: even see it on Black Friday. So how much (laughs) more so (laughs) when like, people are pummeling themselves for like a $300 TV? Right. They'll do so much more for survival. Right. Right. So... Again, your urge to roll your eyes is tempered with, actually, he's not wrong. Right.
2: You shot this episode before you went home for the summer, back to London. Yeah. When you went home, did you find yourself looking at the city like, okay, this is my escape route? Uh-huh. Or, did it affect how you look at your city now? A
1: little bit. Yeah. I went home to London and I was with friends. and We went for a, a little walk and a coffee around Monument, which is um, a part of central London which commemorates the Great Fire of London mm-hmm. in which, you know, the city was decimated in many ways. And looking at that and thinking to myself, oh, yeah, there was, there was a disaster. It happened right here. And, you know, you're looking at this massive thing that they have built and they're talking about where it started. We were in Pudding Lane where the fire started and kind of raised across. You know, St. Paul's Cathedral is in the distance and so on. And so I did think to myself, huh, if there was a fire right now of the same magnitude, What would that look like for me? Like, or a disaster of that kind of like, you know, reality-altering disaster where you see it, like it's taking stuff from you. I think, yeah, I was a little bit more aware, but again, came that oddly fatalistic, but also deeply realistic feeling of, huh, I guess I'll die then. Um, (laughs) It's not funny, but it's it's not. (laughs) But it's but it was just kind of like because you think about it there are so many of us on the on the planet there are so many of us in cities there are so many of us clueless about how to do anything so on the one hand i was like maybe i'd survive a little bit longer than the average person right mm-hmm. thanks to my exposure to these people and you know the, the ways in which they live their lives but on the other hand really deep deep down what would the, how far would that knowledge get me so this for me has been like a taster i do have the bug out bag that Afrovivalist prepared for me. That is literally in my hallway. Yeah. Um, And so I'm kind of like, well... Did you add anything to it beyond what she showed us? I put a couple of pairs of socks in there because I I get cold feet all the time. So I was like, (laughs) you know, customize the bug out bag for yourself. So I I put some woolly socks in there. Um, But, you know, I guess for me, it's kind of like this understanding principles that you can carry into any disaster scenario so Mm. I have batteries now and like a torch in my bag and just little things just everything now is just in case just Mm -hmm. in case and again I suppose the odds are not that something will happen but if they did Mm. like you should have a torch and some batteries in your bag yeah you should do that that's not these are not everything that they said was not illogical it may have seemed fantastical But none of what they were saying was illogical. It was based in a very, very real reality Mm -hmm. for them. Like, this wasn't... Like, they weren't dreaming up scenarios. The shit was real. Yeah. You
2: have met with these survivalists, Mm -hmm. and you've got your bug-out bag in the hallway. Yep. So if you were to open your door, step outside, and Rick Grimes was there, (laughs) like... (laughs) Shit has just gone down. Are (laughs) you ready?
1: Let's go. Do you feel confident that you could survive? I'd be like, Rick, let me put my boots on. Yes, I feel confident. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have some knowledge now that I did not have before. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have new ways of thinking that I did not have before. So I do think that, yeah, I am better prepared. Before, you know, in in the program, I said I might not make it to the pre-credit sequence. Mm -hmm. I could, like, do a solid season. Like, I could survive a solid season. That's significant. You know, I I feel like that's the job of so many journalists, right? You're going with zero knowledge and you come out the other side, a veritable expert on yeah. the other side. I'm not quite expert level. I cannot, for example, fire a, fire a rifle like our revivalists had. She, we went hunting, you know. But, you know, yeah, I, I suppose, I mean, I can't quite mimic a turkey call. But I could learn how to do so. And I think, you know, my brain is wide open now. I'm like, well, let's learn. Let's see what's what. And yeah, I suppose I have a a better understanding of the idea of, I don't know, filtering the air or whatever, or filtering water or keeping yourself safe and warm and Mm -hmm. all these other things. Yeah, it's not, you know, I'm not bare grills. I'm not out there hiking through the Amazon or whatever. Mm. But I also think, yeah, I could live. Okay. I mean, I, I don't have to die pre-credit now. Like, yeah. now I have some skills. I've picked at least at least seven skills up. <laughs> and I feel like that would extend my life by about a season's worth of activity. Yeah.
2: All right. Excellent. Well, <laughs> I'm
1: excited for what you're going to teach me at some point. I mean, you said I'm going to teach you. Maybe you... I'm trying to protect my own resources. Oh, okay. You're just going <laughs> to leave me out there to die. That's Listen, fine. We're all God's children. He'll look after you. It's fine. <laughs> well, thanks, Bim. <laughs>
0: That was Bim and Nicole. You can check out their podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, with new episodes that come out every Thursday. But before we let them go, let's find out what they're watching on Netflix. It's time for what you watchin', where we take a sneak peek at our guests continue watching list.
2: Well Bim, what are you watching on Netflix
1: now? Like what's what's got your attention? Okay, so I am the worst person because I use uh, my Netflix as my background a lot of the time. Mm. So sadly, (laughs) somewhat, uh, basically, I have a lot of friends in my most viewed or at least my viewing activity. So a lot of friends um, around season four. Um, that seems to be my sweet spot, <laughs> <laughs> um, but also I watched um, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Of course, yeah, I still love it. Yeah. I watch it, and it just feels—it's like a hug in a movie. Um, so shout out, shout out to Jenny Han for writing an amazing book, and shout out to Netflix for producing it. It's given me—it's given me all my fifteen-year-old feelings. <laughs> um, also, I watched Good News, um, which is this comedy um, about—it's a workplace comedy. It's in the vein of. 30 Rock a little bit, Better Off Ted a little bit. It's yeah, it's it's a weird one. Like it's it's funny, but also I'm like, why am I watching this? <laughs> but it I only had one season, one season so far. Yeah, created by Tracy Wigfield. I laughed a lot, and some of the jokes I was like, this is stupid, but I laughed a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> who's the fool? I really enjoyed that actually. So that's that's what's on there. Um It's all good though. What are you watching? oh wow okay
2: so um, I've been watching a lot of murder mystery things oh. so Mrs. Fisher's Murder Mysteries nice. which I've already seen three times already but yeah. I keep going back to it's it it's a great series yeah. that's why um, Miss Summer Murders um, oh yeah. yeah see
1: that's that British stuff I was talking yeah. about that's the stuff Americans love to consume from Britain <laughs> here you are f- fulfilling uh, yes, the stereotype yes I love a
2: good mystery um, a good cozy mystery Yeah, uh, and then also uh, Frasier mm. you will have to stream Fraser into my casket, my urn, and I don't know into space, wherever
1: I end up. Into the apocalypse. Yes,
2: <laughs> I love Fraser so much, and so that is,
1: uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much all my. That's I'm watching your background noise. Yeah. It's Fraser. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it in your house. You know, just come into the house, like, Nicole. Oh, just Fraser's on. Yes, it's great. It's wonderful. It's I my love favorite.
0: It. <laughs> and that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back in two weeks with a special episode all about Making a Murderer Part 2. The highly anticipated series is coming back to Netflix on October 19th, but we're launching an exclusive interview with directors Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos on October 17th. So stay tuned for that and even more Making a Murderer content right here on You Can't Make This Up. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it, and generally, it makes me happy. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Alexa Diaz. Thanks for listening.